Good morning, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. I didn't have my microphone in the right place. Please excuse me. Uh, it is Wednesday, August 18th, and today we're going to be discussing a issue that has been in the news very much recently, the rapid fall of Afghanistan back into the hands of the Taliban. Um, this is a very complicated issue, and it's very, very easy to just start pointing fingers and blaming people. Um, so we've turned to one of our favorite sources of information, foreign affairs, Um Notably, the former ambassador to Afghanistan has written a piece for foreign affairs, P. Michael McKinley, uh, entitled We All Lost Afghanistan. And I think that this will provide some very good context, expertise that we as lay people don't necessarily have. So how are you this morning? Oh, I'm doing fine, David. Uh, it's a beautiful day. And I think this episode, episode 108 uh, on uh, August 18th, uh, on uh, by P. Michael McKinley is, is a very good article. He at attacks it in a very uh, uh, insightful way, and he doesn't just say point fingers as you say. Uh, he looks at all different directions, and he listens to people, and he's talking, and we should listen and try to understand not just one view, try to understand multiple views, and I think that's what he does in this article, and I think it's a very good article. I'm looking forward to discussing it. Yes, I like the article as well. I also liked, you know, um, the fact that he's willing to lay blame on multiple people and say this was 20 years of failed policy, and he also lays out this is what we got wrong, and we'll get into that in the article. We got this wrong. We got that wrong. We don't understand this. We didn't understand this. We overestimated this. We underestimated that. Yada, yada, yada. Now, um, one thing that got to me, and it's the obvious question you ask when you read an article like this, but the question is why? And that's one thing the article doesn't really get into. Uh, do, do you know what I'm saying? He, he, lays, yes. out, he lays out the failure, and it, he does it very well, better than you or I could explain it, because he is the former ambassador to Afghanistan. And he says, these are all the things we got wrong, and this is why what's happening now is happening. And that's fantastic to know. Now, I guess trying to answer the question why would be conjecture, but don't you wish that someone had a why answer for the question why? That's a good point, David. I think the why is, again, just like the article, it's not one why. It's multiple reasons. I think there's, I think every person will have their own view, uh, their own their own contribution to why this happened, to why we made these mistakes, why we miscalculated. How did that happen? And I think I think that to look at this and listen to a lot of voices, a lot of minds, a lot of perspectives, uh, and they're all pretty much correct. Uh, just a little here, a little here, a little here. Um, you can have a political uh, view. You can have a social view. You can have a uh, foreign affairs view. You can have a uh, psychological view. You can have an analytical analytics view. Uh, so all different kind of views. And I think that uh, it would give us pause, and not only us, but anyone, give us pause to step back and say, you know, uh, wait, be careful pointing fingers. Be careful looking for an easy answer, one answer. Uh, let's just listen to multiple voices. Let's have a lot of people at the table. 
and let's try to understand what they're saying. Don't just frame it and how you think. Try to understand what other people are saying. That that, and I think that's what we keep saying here in this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that therein lies the whys, not yes. one why, but many whys. And I will say we did watch a little bit of reporting from Vice News because they have been in Afghanistan doing some serious reporting for a long time. Whatever you think of Vice News, they were there. They had boots on the ground. They were talking to people. Not only were they talking to Afghan National Army and security forces personnel, they had a reporter go and embed with the Taliban. And the fascinating thing to me was while the leaders of the Taliban were in Doha promising peace and cooperation after the Americans pulled out. Um, the Taliban on the ground were saying, no, we're not going to cooperate. We're going we're gonna to take over the country and reinstall Sharia law. And they were honest about it. So there was stagecraft. On the world stage, there was acting. They were saying what needed to be said to get to this point. Once they got to this point, they were also telling reporters exactly what they were going to do, which is what they're doing now. And I think it's fascinating that the United States negotiators would say they just have to say the words. If they say the words, we'll pull out. And so the Taliban are saying, we just have to say the words and they'll leave. So we'll say the words. We'll cooperate. We'll cooperate with the national government. We'll be all on board for democracy. And so the U.S. says, that's good enough for us. And they formulate a plan to pull out. And then we see the the fallout. It's fascinating, the, the disconnect between they're obviously lying and they're saying different something different when they're being honest, but it doesn't matter. They said, they said the right thing so we can go through with it. It's, it, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy to me. Well, they, as you say, they entered, they, they talked to the people, the, uh, the Americans, uh, in Afghanistan, and then they talked to the, the Taliban, mm-hmm. like, what do you think? And they said, no, we're not doing that. Says, but they agreed. He says, yeah, fine. They agreed. But we're not doing it. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do it. And, and that, there again, you got to listen to people. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you know, oh, let me tell them what you're going to do. That's not going to happen, you know. And so I, I think I, I actually he gets into a lot of miscalculations. And, David, you just you just uh, uh, identified one why. Mm-hmm. That's why. Because you're listening to one voice, not many voices. Yeah. Or you, you set up a situation where it's like if you say this, you'll get a reward. And you sort of discount the other times when they told journalists, no, we're not going to cooperate. No, we're not going to be part of the Afghan experiment. We're going to retake over the country. And they were saying that openly and honestly. And when they were saying that, you can believe them. You bring them to a peace conference and say, hey, if you promise to say this, you'll get what you want. Of course they're going to say it. That doesn't mean that they're going to mean it or they're going to believe it or they're going to follow anything that they've said. They'll probably follow what they said when they were speaking candidly. Yeah. Well, again, how do they think? How do they think? They'll mm-hmm. say, yeah, I'll do that now. Tomorrow I may change. Yeah. Uh, today, I agree with you. Tomorrow, I'm not going to agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So how many times do we change our minds? Mm-hmm. Uh, or that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it. Uh, the, the thing of it is, is, is you can't, again, getting back to your question, David, there are many, many whys. A lot of mistakes being made. And I think I think it should give the United States pause to look at how many mistakes were made, not only by us, by other people in there, too. The United Nations were in there. I mean, the Russia was in there for many years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, do we really understand 
how to move into these places and, and make change, not by looking at it in, in, with a lens without understanding how they think and how they work and how they live and how they believe and how they put together their their laws. Their laws are not the same as our laws. Yes. Um, so shall we get into the article? Let's get in the article, yeah. We all lost Afghanistan. Two decades of mistakes, misjudgment, and collective failure by P. Michael McKinley. This is from uh, two days ago. And I am a subscriber. I just, it's on a different browser. This is the podcast browser. So even though it says subscribe, I subscribe to the uh, Foreign Affairs, just for the record. Um, and if you care about foreign issues and you want a balanced perspective of uh, foreign issues, Foreign Affairs is a great publication. Just a shout out to them before we start using their content to help frame our discussion. So here we go. We All Lost Afghanistan by P. Michael McKinley. As Afghanistan tumbles into Taliban hands, the avalanche of recrimination and outright condemnation of the Biden administration's withdrawal of U.S. troops in Afghanistan has become unrelenting. Former National Security Advisor General H.R. McMaster echoed the sentiments of many when he declared that Afghanistan is a humanity problem on a modern-day frontier between barbarism and civilization, and that the United States lacks the will to continue the effort in the interest of all humanity. What is happening is a terrible tragedy, but the blame cannot be laid at any one door. The Biden administration's short timetable for withdrawal, tied to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and in the middle of the fighting season, was a mistake. But the situation on the ground is the result of two decades of miscalculations and failed policies, pursued by three prior U.S. administrations, and of the failure of Afghanistan's leaders to govern for the good of their people. Many of the critics speaking out now were architects of those policies. The broader question about why Afghanistan finds itself at this juncture undermine attempts to justify the war on terror, as it was waged in the country over two decades. During my more than three years in Kabul, between 2013 and 2016, including as U.S. ambassador from 2014 to 2016, it became evident to me just how steep the challenges to U.S. strategy were. Although we were largely successful in eliminating al-Qaeda in the country and reducing the threat of terrorist attacks to the United States, we failed in our approach to counterinsurgency, to Afghan politics, and to nation-building. We underestimated the resiliency of the Taliban, and we misread the geopolitical realities of the region. It is time to face the facts. A decision to delay the withdrawal of U.S. forces for another year or two would ultimately have made no difference to the unbearably sad consequences on the ground in Afghanistan. The United States would have had to commit to Afghanistan indefinitely at a cost of tens of billions a year with little hope of building on fragile gains inside a country with weak governance, with battlefield conditions eroding, and with the certainty that many more American lives would be lost as the Taliban again targeted U.S. forces and diplomats. As the blame games and lessons learned exercises begin, therefore, it is also time for critics of the withdrawal to address squarely the misjudgments and shortcomings of the Afghanistan intervention that led us to this point and for them to recognize that responsibility for what went wrong should be widely shared. There's the intro. Good. It's a very good intro. Mm-hmm. And uh, first, I, I think of a number of things when I hear that to get started. One is there's not just one answer. There's many answers. There's not one cause. There's many causes. And you can't solve something by keep doing what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. 
And I, if it doesn't work, change it. <laughs> and before we move on, I will just point out the thesis statement, where did we fail, is here. We failed in our approach to counterinsurgency to Afghan politics and to nation building. We underestimated the resiliency of the Taliban, and we misread the geopolitical realities of the region. I think that sums up the reasons why this is happening. And I, I agree. In a, in a half a sentence. Mm-hmm. So shall we continue with the article? I mean, yes, we can get into the details. Do you want to read or should I read? Uh, it doesn't matter. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll just read it. Okay. Uh, the military collapse in light of the Taliban's rapid takeover of Afghan city after Afghan city in recent days. Perhaps the most striking American misjudgment is our ongoing overestimation of the capabilities of the Afghan national defense and security forces. Even without tactical American military support, the ANDSF should have been in a position to defend major cities and critical military installations. As numerous observers have pointed out, the ANDSF on paper was significantly larger and far better equipped and organized than the Taliban. The Afghan special forces were compared with the best in the region. As late as March 2021, U.S. intelligence briefings for Biden administration officials were reportedly warning that the Taliban could take over most of the country in two to three years, not in a few weeks. This overestimation of ANDSF capabilities was a constant after the end of the surge of American forces between 2009 and 2011. The semi-annual U.S. Defense Department presentations to Congress regularly underscored the growing professionalization and fighting capability of the Afghan military. The December 2012 report on progress towards security and stability in Afghanistan was typical, highlighting that Afghan forces were carrying out 80% of operations and had successfully recruited enough Afghans to meet the authorized ceiling of 352,000 troops and police. The November 2013 report on progress towards security and stability in Afghanistan went further. Afghan security forces are now successfully providing security for their own people, fighting their own battles, and could hold the gains made by a coalition of 50 nations with the best trained and equipped forces in the world. By 2014, Afghan forces reportedly, quote, led 99% of conventional operations and 99% of special operations and remained, quote, at just under the full authorized level of 352,000 personnel. Even as the situation on the ground deteriorated, a 2017 report described the ANDSF as generally capable of protecting major population centers and responding to Taliban attacks. Only in the last few years did the reports begin to reflect a more concerning reality. In 2017, and again in 2019, there were reports that tens of thousands of ghost soldiers were being removed from the rolls, suggesting that there were never close to 330,000 troops available to fight the Taliban, let alone 352,000. The Defense Department's December 2020 report to Congress noted that only approximately 298,000 ANDSF personnel were eligible for pay, hinting at the recruiting problem with ghost, recurring problem with ghost soldiers and desertions. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, Saigar, also regularly highlighted problems tracking equipment and salaries. Waste, fraud, and mismanagement of resources meant to transform the Afghan military further undermined the fighting capability of the ANDSF. The measure of waste and fraud runs into the billions of dollars, with corruption often involving senior Afghan government officials. Saigar did manage to expose much of this, but more should have been done to stop it. 
Okay. So, uh, and you're muted, just so you know. But um, let's take a look at what he had to say. Yes. Now, this part, this part was, was revealing. Report after report painted a picture that the Afghan security forces were capable. Um, and they weren't. They immediately capitulated to Taliban, you know, right after we withdrew. So, so why did report after report say that they were capable? Yeah, I, we, a lot of conjecture here. A lot of conjecture. Uh, we're, let's just assume all the reports are correct. In other mm -hmm. words, they they said that uh, they were carrying out uh, 99 percent of conventional operations and special forces. Let's say, yeah, they did that, uh, and they were very good at that. And uh, so. When they were doing what we wanted them to do, they were very good at that. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is yes, this is what the Americans, this is how the Americans do it, and we could do it like they do it. But we know now that then when they were faced with how Afghans do it, or the Taliban, yeah, we'll, we'll do that too. And they did, they just, they were, they were uh, trained and they knew how to do it. And I think, uh, uh, so they had the ability to do it and they did it. But the question is, why didn't they keep doing it? They didn't, they didn't keep doing it when uh, uh, this last couple of weeks. I, well, I think this is my hypothesis. Do you know what a G-Wagon is? No. Um. A G-Wagon. Let me pull up a picture of it. There are these uh, Mercedes. And let me, uh, real quickly, I'll just kill us so we can see the... Uh, there are these Mercedes wagons, okay? Just for context. They cost okay. $200,000. Uh, $250,000. A quarter of a million dollars for these G-Wagons. They get about nine miles to the gallon. Um... So let's say you're a suburban housewife or a suburban house husband, and you're very wealthy, and you buy a G-Wagon, and you use it to go to the grocery store. You use it to go to Starbucks. You're filling it up twice a week, but you're like, this was a good investment. This was, this was a good thing to buy. This was a good thing to spend a quarter million dollars on. Oh, I just, I love it. It's comfortable. I feel like we spent so much time and effort and money in Afghanistan that the people that were writing the reports were the people whose careers depended on continuing to spend that time and money and effort in Afghanistan. And painting a realistic picture of the inefficacy of the money that we were spending there would sort of be bad for the people who were responsible on reporting on what was happening there. That's why you only saw uh, a special inspector had to be reported in 20... Uh, where is Saigar? Where does he come into play? Here it is. He regularly highlighted problems. So his job is to expose the corrupt, corruption. And the special, a special inspector's job is to investigate to make sure the money's going to the right places. And of mm -hmm. course he found graft. Of course he found corruption. Of course he found problems tracking equipment and salaries, as the author says, waste, fraud, and mismanagement of resources. But... He did manage to expose much of this, but more should have been done to stop it. I think that when the gravy train is rolling, when tens of billions of dollars a year are going in, 
and you have one special inspector general for the Afghanistan reconstruction saying there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of waste. I think the people on the American side and the people on the Afghan side are benefiting from that waste. Whether it's contractors, whether it's equipment providers, whether it's material providers, whether it's the generals on the ground requesting more money and then not paying it out in salaries, just pocketing it themselves. There's a lot of inertia that keeps you from allocating the funds as you say you're going to. And then the thing is, everyone has a stake in it in the billions of dollars of, of military contracts. So when it comes time to report about the efficacy of the uh, effort, you're going to lie. Because if you don't lie, the money will stop coming. That's, that's what, that's, I think that might be what's happening. That's my reading of the situation. That's, that's true. That's good. Uh, another another uh, point here is that the numbers were wrong. Uh, they began to realize they're ghost soldiers when they got when they dug deeper. They realized that the uh, there was not that many uh, people eligible for pay, uh, eligible for pay. They began to realize that there wasn't three hundred fifty-two thousand. Uh, uh, it's going to be two hundred ninety-eight thousand, maybe, and maybe even less than that. Like you say, uh, this is just for pay. Where's all that pay going? Is it is each of those pay? Uh, is that a one to one to for a person, or is that just uh, are there are there actually less than two ninety eight to ninety eight thousand? Mm -hmm. And so the numbers uh, need need to be vetted, need to be uh, need to be justified. Uh, are they correct? And we know now they weren't correct. And and, the, uh, and an inspector general vets those numbers, but it looks like, you know, you have one guy in theater saying, or you know, one office in theater saying, there's a lot of waste mismanagement and pure fraud and the one guy or the one office in theater that's saying that isn't given the resources to do anything about it so of course it's going to continue <laughs> it's it's sad it's uh but i feel like this happens a lot right well yeah it does and uh, so the question arises uh if if we did this in Afghanistan, and this is this is seen, this came to the surface. We actually see that, and so this is really part of the practices of the United States, in general. So how many other places does this happen mm -hmm. in the world, and also even within our country? Yeah. So uh, so it's a good article. It's a good article. Shall we continue on? Sure. The Eroding Stalemate. Do you want to read? Okay, I'll read the next one. Okay. On the battlefield from 2013 onward, the Taliban uh, seemed to gain ground every year in what came to be called an eroding stalemate in Washington parlance. Uh, even with the 2013 death of Taliban uh, founder Mullah Omar, his successor's assassination in 2016, and the heaviest coalition bombardments of the war in 2018 to 19. The seeds for that eroding stalemate were sown early on. The failure to invest in Afghanistan's uh, police and military in the first year, uh, in the first years after 2001, meant a loss of valuable time to build a capable fighting force when the Taliban were on the defensive. The building of an air force was not prioritized for more than a decade. The training of a new generation of Afghan pilots began only in 2009 
and was slower than necessary because of a decision to, to transition the Afghan fleet from Russian craft to Blackhawks. And while the Afghan Air Force had more recently come, come to be seen as relatively effective, any success was undermined by the decision this year to withdraw the thousands of contractors who provided maintenance and support for operations as U.S. advisors began to leave in 2019. Indeed, the failure to transfer the services of the 18,000 contractors who work with the Afghan military or to provide the financial guarantees to cover the costs proved damaging to the government in Kabul. Uh, although it is now unclear whether the ANDSF would have fought even with that support. These services may have sustained the logistics flow to the uh, ANDSF and the field and the maintenance of the Afghan Air Force despite the withdrawal of the U.S. forces. Instead, July 19 nighttime U.S. departure from Bagram Air, Air Base, a key logistics fulcrum, will become an enduring symbol of our military failure in Afghanistan. The failure to maintain a logistics capability had another consequence, hampering the evacuation of embassy personnel and tens of thousands of Afghans beyond just interpreters who worked with the U.S. military diplomatic mission and assistance programs. Meanwhile, the counterinsurgency strategy embraced by the United States never demonstrated an ability to bring sustained gains. As former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mike Mullen told an inter an interviewer this week. He opposed the extension of the U.S. surge past 2011 because if we did not have significant progress or show significant progress over the course of 18 months or so, then we had the wrong strategy and we really needed to recalibrate. Yet until the decision to withdraw, such a recalibration never came. Year after year, Afghan soldiers went months without pay and without the necess necessary supplies to defend themselves. More recently, provincial capitals do not appear to have been adequately reinforced, even though it was clear 18 months ago that the United States intended to withdraw troops within a year of the Doha agreement that the Trump administration truck was, uh, struck with the Taliban in February 2020. As the Taliban advance intensified in the past weeks, Afghan soldiers were also let down by their commanders and political leaders who over 20 years have failed abysmally to earn national allegiance. It is striking how incapable Afghanistan's government was of issuing any rallying cry for the nation as its defenses collapsed. This concept helps explain why the ANDSF did not fight in recent days. Another misjudgment relates to the weakness of regional warlords. Since 2001, there has been a broad assumption that these warlords commanded thousands of armed followers who could be mobilized quickly against the Taliban. Both the United States and the national Afghan government believed this to be the case and accommodated often brutal local leaders as a result. The fall of Shibrigan, stronghold of former vice president and human rights violator, Abdul Rashid Dustam of Herat, previously under the sway of former uh, Mujahideen leader Ismail Khan and of Mazar e Sharif, Sharif, formerly run by Atta Nur, reveal how deeply flawed that assumption was. Afghan President uh, Ashraf Ghani 
appealed for assistance from these warlords, only to find they had no forces to rally. A sorry, a sorry a commentary on the state of the national government, the army, and the U.S. reading of a fragmented Afghan political reality. The United States also overestimated its abilities to address another factor that fundamentally undermined the war effort, Taliban sanctuaries in Pakistan. For years, U.S. leaders sought the support of Islamabad for a peaceful resolution of the war in Afghanistan. They failed. Islamabad was more interested in keeping its options open on Afghanistan. Yet even after 9-11, mastermind al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden was found hiding in Abbottabad. The United States retained close ties to Pakistan, given the country's broader regional importance. It is extraordinarily difficult to defeat an insurgency that has a cross-border sanctuary. The Taliban leadership in, in Qaeda and Peshawar raised funds, planned attacks, and recruited without a hindrance. The Afghan government asked repeatedly for Pakistan's assistance in closing Taliban bases. Yet Pakistan's Minister of the Interior admitted in July 2021 that Taliban families lived in Islamabad suburbs. You're muted. Yes, thank you. So this is a bit what was uh, going on, what you were talking about in the beginning. Uh, if you have a strategy that's not working, don't continue to do it until the very end. And that's here, up here. Uh, Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He opposed the extension of the surge because if we do not have significant progress or show significant progress over the course of 18 months, then we had the wrong strategy and we need to recalibrate. Yet, until the decision to withdraw, a recalibration never came. That is exactly what you were talking about. Uh, for, and and uh, Mike Mullen, uh, it's, they, had, they had the people at the table in the room saying what needed to be said. Action wasn't taken. It wasn't. It wasn't listened to. Yes. And so they did. They did have. They they had the people saying it, but they didn't do it. They weren't listening, <laughs> were they, David? No. Anyway, uh, this this outlines and lists uh, failure after failure after failure, and also everything that we didn't do and they did do supported their cause. Yes, and I believe that this first paragraph is the work that this guy was involved in, you know, he, um, talking about the capable fighting force, you know, as an ambassador, I'm sure that the leadership in Afghanistan were saying, we need Blackhawks or, you know, we need, we need an air force. And that was a point of contention. That was something that he had to deal with as ambassador to Amb Afghanistan. So he knows intimately the details of what the U.S. was giving them because he was the ambassador to Afghanistan, and not just what they were giving them in terms of material support, but what they were giving them in terms of technical support, including uh, maintenance contractors, um, so a repair upkeep of all of the weaponry and systems that we were giving them, and training as well. And that's one thing I've heard that's not in this article, is that people are bemoaning all that equipment we gave them is now in the hands of the Taliban. But I've also heard other military experts say, yes, but um, they're not trained on a lot of that equipment. And 
that equipment requires a lot of expensive maintenance and upkeep, and they won't be able to get the parts or have anyone with the knowledge or expertise to repair it. So it won't be long until um, those systems are obsolete, which is scary to me because an argument like that means military contractors build our weapons to break down in 18 months. <laughs> and so that they can provide their own contractors to go in and fix it for us. It's like everyone's riding the gravy train. I don't know. That's that's just that's an aside. But I think the importance of talking about the material costs it he says um It's uncertain whether if we had done all these things, it would have made a difference. Here we go. Um, the failure to transfer services or provide financial guarantees to cover the cost for services proved damaging to the government. But it is now unclear whether the ANDSF would have fought even with that support. That's right. That's right. So uh, the thing about leaving all of our equipment there, it's not so much that they have the equipment. It's more or less that the uh, psychological victory of, look, they left and look what we have. This is theirs. It's more like a symbol and it's a, and it's a prize and they don't need to use it. Mm -hmm. They have it. There's a dozen Taliban fighters posing in front of a Black Hawk helicopter and saying, this is ours right. now. This is our helicopter. That's right. They can, they can bring whatever they want. They can bring all their millions and billions of dollars and we're going to defeat them. Mm -hmm. We win. It's a psychological victory. It's not so much about the money. It's just, did did we, yeah, we have money, but did you use it right? So we have to rethink and recalibrate uh, how we're using what we use. Mm -hmm. So we can, we, can, we can focus on building uh, uh, our equipment, our infrastructure. We can focus on building our, our, our logistics. But if we don't know how to use it, the processes and the and the, the strategy, uh, you're, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. So success is not just in having uh, a bigger machine than than your opponent. It's knowing how to use it and understanding your opponent, mm -hmm. or your colleagues, or your your neighbors or your friends. Yeah, or you know, not getting involved in the first place. And we get into this in the next section because I've read this article already, but. He discusses about how the, the point of the war we achieved, which was to go in and get al-Qaeda to reduce the threat coming out of Afghanistan of, of terrorist threats. The problem was, after we'd achieved that goal, whenever we left, we would have seen a scene similar to what we've seen in the last week or two. So... That became a hot potato for the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now the Biden administration. Anyone who decides to sort of make the decision to pull out is going to be faced with scenes like this on the news. And now is well, the this, time that we paid the piper. On this section, I'll get back to your question, David. Why did this happen? Why? And and to me, the why is looking at, hey, look look what they're talking about. What Look what he's saying uh, in this section here. Uh, we did all of these things uh, of supporting and the money and the equipment and the maintenance and the and the instruction and everything, and that did not work. Mm -hmm. So why did that not work in this case? Well, the reasons we did it may be the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. 
let's back up and rethink this on how to deal with other nations other than ourselves. Do we know how they, why did this not work? It's one thing to say, yeah, it didn't work. It's obvious it didn't work. And, but like uh, Mike Mullen was saying, why did it not work? And what are we doing wrong? Let's stop doing it because it doesn't work. Let's back up and try to figure out why didn't it not work? Mm-hmm. Don't just keep trying things. Let's start thinking about this and let's dig down deep. And so the reasons behind why we did what we did has to be rethought. Yeah. Um, but it seems like after the surge in 2011, where we sort of won back gains against the Taliban, from 2013 on, the last seven or eight years, 2012 on, uh, an eroding stalemate, and that's what the military people called it. It's like we're losing there. We're just sort of indefinitely there. And I think he said it in an earlier section. In order to hold Afghanistan, we would need to be there forever. We were never going to establish a central government that was capable of providing for the defense against the Taliban. And it's at that question, it's like if countries have the right to self-determination and might makes right, is Afghanistan destined to be run by the Taliban? It's It's a difficult question to ask, but... Well, in 2011, yes, we did we did take back, uh, but we won on the ground. We won the battle. But winning a battle doesn't mean you win the war. And what is the war? And so as we continued on, things began to disintegrate. Uh, the stalemate happened because maybe winning the battle moves us into a to, to an ability or a challenge to sustain what we what we won. And we didn't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. So creating a nation there like ours is not going to work because they're not us. Mm-hmm. What kind of nation belongs there? Uh, well, what kind of people are they? What kind of, where are they? Uh, so we have to think, what do they need? Not what do we want them to have? We don't. Want, why would you want to make someone like you? You want to make them to be who they are but you want to uh, in, uh, you want to uh, infuse uh, values uh, and and uh, your value system, uh, but you don't want to undermine their value system. So it's not like either or; it's a combination of the two. Yeah, my, but my question is: Let's say the Taliban overran New York City, Washington D.C., um, L.A. and Chicago and Denver, and then. They're trying to tell us, listen, we want you to have your values, but we want you to see our values, too. We need a combination of the two. How would the average American feel about that? It's like, oh, they just want to do a hybrid of Sharia law and Western democracy. And they invaded. So let's just work with them. But that wouldn't play. You know, if you if you turn the tables, right. that wouldn't play. It would never play no matter what. No one would ever accept it. And I think that may be... You know, if you look at it from their perspective, why the United States would always be seen as illegitimate, no matter how much money, you know, how much they invested in the nation to try to build schools or improve civil society, a Taliban fighter would always see them as an invader and always see whatever values that they were trying to promote, whether they were good or bad, as bad. So uh, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. But let's suppose, I don't know what, but 
let's suppose the Taliban did, was a very good analogy, a very good uh, uh, approach. The Taliban comes in, all of a sudden, they're in charge of Denver. Okay, well, we want you to do, you know, ABC, and he says, we're not doing that. Uh, okay, but we have, your schools are gone, but we have schools here. It says, well, we want to do this for you. Fine, but we're not going to do it your way. We're doing it our way because it's our culture. Uh, we did not do that in Afghanistan. No, but maybe it's because we didn't belong there in the first place. I don't know. That's Maybe so. Maybe you're right. Or maybe, maybe right. and I think the problem is, and I'll go back to this because right at the top, H.R. McMaster, former national security advisor. Um, Afghanistan is a humanity problem on a modern day frontier between barbarism and civilization. And the United States lacks the will to continue the effort in the interest of all humanity. Okay. So what we're saying is the value system of the Taliban who fought the United States army for 20 years, managed to remain undefeated, uh, you know, not completely routed and managed to take back the country within two weeks of us leaving is illegitimate. And because of that, we need to impose U.S. values because their values lack um, any humanity. And I see a danger. I see what he's saying. I, I, I understand what he's saying. Um, but it's, it's difficult uh, because... Is, the, is it the role of the United States to vouchsafe the entire world from human rights abuses? And if we have the power, and if it's only going to cost us $10, $20 billion a year and, you know, a thousand lives, is that worth it? Because, you know, hundreds of thousands of people will be thrown into oppression. They might die, you know, because we are not there. So is it our job to make sure that that happens? And, and a lot of people would say, yes, it is. It's our duty. As the most powerful nation in the world with the most powerful military, we can improve the lives of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. But other people would say, no, that the cost is too great. What about, you know, here in the homeland? What about the infrastructure bill? And it's like, oh, you want cleaner water and better roads instead of all these people dying? You know, like it's, it's not a one-to-one -one trade off. But do you see what I'm saying? It's difficult. Where do you draw the line? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but all I was getting at it was that uh, is there is there things that we can do to help them, mm -hmm. and and if there are things that we can do to help them, then we should help them. But uh, helping them doesn't mean that you have to be like we are. Mm -hmm. You have to be like us, and so uh, we're not gonna we're not going to. Uh, well, we did. We went in there. Our strategy was wrong. So I'm saying back up and rethink it. And like like they're saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do we belong there? We don't belong there in creating our country and their country. But do we belong there? Maybe. Uh, how could we help them? Uh, how, uh, the nation and the people. And so uh, their values are not the same as our values. They're very different. Okay, and so how do you how do you move forward? That has to be rethought, and you can't just go in and say stop what you're doing and do it our way. 
and I'm not saying that there's an easy answer, mm -hmm. but I'm saying it has to be rethought. Yeah. It's like the next time we invade a country, um, we need to do it better. <laughs> or you know, the next time we invade and occupy a country for 20 years, we need to be more mindful of the end result. It's, it, I mean... Well, uh, same thing in Iraq, same thing in Vietnam. Uh, uh, I don't want to bring I don't want to bring other wars into this, but uh, when you when you have a military objective, identify that objective specifically to do. Once you've achieved it, then you don't continue on uh, with other objectives that you didn't start with that are not military. Like Gulf War One. Gulf War One. We. Exactly pushed Iraq out of Kuwait, and then we chose not to go to Baghdad. And I'm sure that that decision is often seen as a strategically good decision in hindsight, because if you go to Baghdad, you have to own it. And of course, we went back to Baghdad, you know, 10, 11 years later, and then we did have to own it. And so if we would have gone to Baghdad in 92 instead of 2003, 2004, uh, we would have had to own it for 12 more years. <laughs> so the, the thing is, like you're saying, looking back, you say, well, you know, maybe we need to stay within the parameters. But you could also argue for those 14, 12 years, Saddam Hussein was still in power and life was miserable for anyone that wasn't in the Ba'ath Party and affiliated with Saddam Hussein. There was a humanitarian crisis in that nation, and we could have stopped all of that had we marched into Baghdad 12 years earlier. And it's, it's fascinating to sort of play the devil's advocate on stuff like this, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's good uh, to think back of how we should have done it, not so much what we, we're gonna, what, what we have done, but think of why we did what we do and how do we use that for future decisions and future campaigns or future things we have to do. So we have to rethink and learn from our past before we continue on mm -hmm. and uh, commit the same mistakes. Yes. Uh, which brings up another good question, which we can talk about later. Yeah, there was a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. But were there some good decisions too? Were there things that were done correctly? And why did we do it in the first place? Was that, was that correct? So did something with doing things correctly or doing things with a, with a right motive go awry or was it wrong from the very, very beginning? Mm -hmm. Well, so I think, I think misreading the Afghan rail, this next section might get into some of that. This is sort of, I think a lot of your point is we don't really, we never had a complete understanding of Afghanistan. That's right. And we sort of went in and we were blind to reality. And that's probably the largest point of failure. That's why he's, that may be why he saves it for last. So misreading Afghan realities. We're back to the article. Why did an okay. effective Afghan government fail to emerge over 20 years? The United States certainly tried to help produce one. Our efforts to impose a Western democratic model on Afghanistan, first at the Bonn Conference in 2001, and through the writing of the National Constitution, continued over two decades. Former Afghan President Hamid Karzai complained often about overbearing U.S. political influence. Such interference often seemed to keep Afghan politics on track, but with unexpected consequences. When Richard Holbrook, 
Then the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan sought to influence the 2009 election. He succeeded not in stopping a Karzai victory, but only in turning the Afghan president into an enemy. In 2014, when U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry brokered a government of national unity as the threat of civil conflict loomed, the result was an uneasy political compromise between President Ghani and challenger Abdullah Abdullah that never settled. In the next presidential election in 2019, fewer than 2 million Afghans voted, down from 8 million just five years before. The contested result hardly suggested Afghanistan's democracy was consolidating at a time when the Taliban threat was increasing. By the time the unity government leaders visited Washington to meet President Joe Biden in June of 2021, unity was non-existent except in name, and Ghani's presidential palace was increasingly isolated. Yet, many in Washington continued to assume a semblance of common purpose regarding the looming Taliban threat. Afghanistan's national political leadership never fully cohered on how best to fight the Taliban. There were tensions between regional power brokers and Kabul, and between Pashtuns and the minority Tajiks, Hazaras, and Uzbeks. Both Karzai and Ghani managed ethnic representation through a spoil system, rather than the promotion of a common national vision. And U.S. efforts to identify, even select leaders in ministries, succeeded only in undermining the independence and legitimacy of the Afghan government. The Taliban, by contrast, proved resilient, not just as military and terrorist organization, but as a political movement as well. After 2001, the Taliban continued to enjoy popular support in parts of Afghanistan and retained the ability to field tens of thousands of new generations of young Afghan adherents. Even during the surge of U.S. troops in 2009-11, to the Taliban proved able to evolve. Afghan government's efforts to reconcile with the Taliban from 2010 onward represented an implicit acceptance of their political and military salience inside Afghanistan. The decision by the United States to negotiate formally with the Taliban in 2018 and of foreign governments to welcome Taliban emissaries after the Doha agreement of February 2020 reflected that reality. We misread the Taliban when we were fighting them. We also misread their more recent pledge to negotiate peace as they shadow boxed in Doha with the Ghani government after reaching agreement with the United States on withdrawal timetables. They never had any intention of reaching a settlement. The notion that the Taliban have changed seems even more naive now, given the disturbing images emerging from the current takeover. Yet, that intention was in some ways mirrored by the United States. The ultimate goal of American negotiators was to create the conditions for an orderly U.S. withdrawal, and the Taliban always knew that. Now, threats to withhold international recognition as the Taliban capture Kabul by force mean little. Taliban leaders are not concerned about whether the United States recognizes them as a government. Other international actors probably will, will no matter what Washington does. Another series of misjudgments and mistakes related to American ambitions when it came to nation-building. To American officials, much of what was being done seemed to work. The United States worked to support a representative government, strengthen the legislature, and provide for both a degree of security and the delivery of social services. Its efforts transformed Afghan education, with an ex exponential growth in the number of girls in school and of women at university and in the workplace. Civil rights were codified, and a free press and judiciary came into being. Millions of refugees returned to Afghanistan in the years after 2001. Yet, even with these successes, we oversold the gains. 
and we did less than we could have about corruption, knowingly working with senior government and military officials that ordinary Afghans saw as responsible for graft and political and human rights abuses. Our counter-narcotics program was an abject failure. Poppy production continued to increase for most of the past decade, with the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime estimating a 37% increase in acres under cultivation in 2020. The hope that Afghanistan's economic growth would eventually allow the government to cover its own expenditures was advanced year after year at donors' conferences, even though that clearly would not be the case for the foreseeable future. Grandiose projects languished. It took 15 years to install a new turbine on the Kajaki Dam, a symbol of American largesse towards Afghanistan in the 1950s. Okay. Good. Good so section. We misread the Afghan government. We misread the Taliban. And I don't know. I mean, that's all true because I think it's the G Wagon. Example. We were spending all this money, all this time, all these resources there. You want it to work. You want to believe it so bad that you look past all of the red flags. You know? It's like mm-hmm. um, you want to believe that your efforts aren't in vain, that you haven't wasted hundreds of billions of dollars, thousands of American lives, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Afghan lives for no reason. So you say, oh, I, th- I think it's working. Oh, I think the Afghan government can support themselves. Oh, I think that there's uh, coalescing around a national government. I think there's an Afghani spirit. I don't think the Taliban will take over in three days after we leave. And all of that was f- not true. It was just wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. So do you think that it's misreading? Or do you think that it's deliberately lying to ourselves about the situation on the ground? Uh, it's a little bit of both. And I think at the very beginning of this section, uh, I, I've often, I, I kind of agree with the, the, the uh, third sentence at the very beginning. Uh, why did an effective Afghan government fail to emerge over 20 years? The United States certainly tried to help to produce one. And look at this next sentence. Our efforts to impose a Western democratic model on Afghanistan, first at the Bonn Conference in 2001 through the Uh, continued over two decades, and it never worked. And I think it's like your example was is spot on, David, uh, where what if the Taliban overtook our country and they want to have their government here? This is do we want to do it the way they do it? No, we don't. Yeah. Do they want to do it? No, no, they don't. Do you think, Uh, you know, do you think Karen, who's, you know, she gets her Starbucks Frappuccino every day, do you think she'd be okay with Sharia law? You know, she she complains. Yeah, I don't think it wouldn't work here, perhaps to the same extent that imposing a Western democratic model on a country like Afghanistan won't work also. Exactly right. But is that just the only tool in the toolkit? Is it the only play in the playbook? No, it's not. I don't think so. That's what they tried did not work. So. Don't just try to say a Western democracy within a model. Say, okay, well, what models do work? Yeah. Moving forward, what does work in the in the future? That's the thought process I think the United States needs to think, and not unilaterally. They need to think with other countries. Mm-hmm. 
sit down with all the countries. I mean, we saw, David, we saw on the uh, the news, the vice, they, they were saying when the uh, at the conferences, they were saying one thing, and then you talk to the Taliban leaders and they say, no, the totally opposite. Mm-hmm. It says, no, we're not, we're not doing that at all. So they're not listening to everybody, uh, listening to the, actually listening to the people who are actually uh, making the decisions. I feel like a lot of this is, we were just hearing what we wanted to hear when people said that things were going to be okay. I think, right. Yeah. And there, and, uh, people were, people will tell them what they want to hear. Because uh, I like you, like the G wagon example, yeah. Because they're going to say that. Because you spent all this money on a G wagon, and it's completely impractical. But you're like, it looks cool. I I just feel good when I'm driving it, and it's like it's the most impractical car you could possibly buy. And you try to find, you try very hard to find reasons to justify the decisions you've already made. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I had to take out a mortgage on my home to afford this car. And <laughs> it's okay, though. I, I really enjoy driving. It makes me feel good. It's like, I, I had to borrow from my retirement to make some of the payments on this yeah. G-Wagon. But it, it, I think it's cool. It's like, no. <laughs> like You should have bought a, a Honda Civic. You would be just as, you'd have your house, you'd have your retirement. You wouldn't have a G-Wagon, but you would still be able to get from point A to point B. Yeah. And I think uh, they tried very, very hard to have to talk to the right people, to meet with the right people, to say the right things, to pretty much justify what they already decided. They're, mm-hmm. they're not going to change their decision. And so instead of justifying what they decided, step back and say, uh, what's the right decisions? Yes. Instead of reasoning through, if we do this, this will work, we say, we're going to do this. Now let's rationalize why it was a good idea. Exactly. What metrics do we need to show to sort of prove that we're not just wasting our time and money and that this isn't all going to fall apart the second we leave, which, of course, is exactly what it did. So we have one more section. Should we finish it off? Because we're already at an hour. Okay. But then Michael Kenley, in this section, though, he says that the, the signals were there. The reality was there. They just they just misread them, or they ignored them, or, but they were all there. The signals were there. This is happening, and they continued to do uh, what they did, even though they had the realities in front of them, and they and they ignored them. Uh, lack of unity. Uh, uh, the uh, he just he just has a, a laundry list of all of these these realities, and so. Uh, People were not listening to him. Okay, the last section, who lost Afghanistan? So it's just a few paragraphs. Let me read it. Sure. In February 2021, the congressionally mandated Afghanistan uh, study group came out with its recommendations for the way forward. It highlighted the importance of continued support for the Afghan state and people, of continued diplomacy and support of peace process, of working with regional allies and of extending the U.S. troop presence to allow for the Doha peace negotiations to conclude. All but one of these policies were in effect before and after the report was issued, but they did nothing to stem the collapse we are witnessing now. The survival of the Afghan state should not have been solely dependent on the continuation of an American troop presence. 
There's one seductive argument made by critics of the withdrawal that a Taliban-ruled Afghanistan will again become a haven for terrorist groups threatening the security of the United States. This argument is a backhanded acknowledgement that we succeeded in reducing the threat from Afghanistan to minimal levels, the original rationale for U.S. intervention. The sacrifice, however, was significant. More than $1 trillion, the deaths of 2,400 U.S. service members and thousands of contractors, more than 20,000 wounded Americans. Perhaps the resurgence of a terrorist threat will develop more quickly under a future Taliban government than it would have otherwise. But to conclude that this outcome demands an indefinite U.S. troop presence would imply that U.S. troops should also be deployed indefinitely in the many other parts of the world where Islamic State, also known as ISIS, and Al-Qaeda offshoots are active in greater numbers than they are in Afghanistan and pose a greater threat to the United States. Moreover, U.S. capabilities to monitor and strike at terrorist groups have grown exponentially since 2001. Ultimately, Washington's decision to withdraw U.S. troops is not the sole or even most important explanation for what is unfolding in Afghanistan today. The explanation lies in 20 years of failed policies and the shortcomings of Afghanistan's political leadership. We can still hope that we in the United States do not end up in a poisonous debate about who lost Afghanistan. But if we do, let's acknowledge that it was all of us. Okay. I think it was a great article. I mean, um, it gave me context because you can say, oh, we didn't, we didn't judge them right. And then you have the ambassador saying, these are the things we misjudged. These are the people that we trusted that we had no business trusting. This was the amount of money we outlaid that probably went to nowhere. And we had, you know, an inspector general saying, whoa, there's corruption here. But everyone looked the other way. Um, everyone's palms were getting greased. And sadly, we lost, you know, 2,400 troops and 20,000 wounded. Um, I'm sure that's a fraction of the Afghani lives that were lost. That's right. And so the cost of war is, it's you know, it's paid in, in blood and, and it's paid in dollars and it's paid in, in guns and bombs. But uh, I think that no matter what happened, this was going to be a sad story uh, because a war-torn region is, is going to be a sad story. It's, it's difficult to find hope in a, in a war-torn region. And any semblance of stability uh, that was a result of the U.S. presence, it got overturned by the Taliban in a matter of weeks. Now, I think life will get worse there. I don't know how much worse and for whom, but I don't think that life was all that great there to begin with, too, because war is hell. That's I guess that's my my closing thought on this. Well, it's been going on for 20 years, 20 years of failed policies. And during those 20 years, we kept sending troops over there. Uh, and some, some brave men and women soldiers went over there two, three different uh, tours. But during those 20 years, the Taliban 
they've been fighting every single one of those years. They didn't have a tour. That was their life. Mm -hmm. And when you're fighting for your life, you're not going to give up. It doesn't matter what it is. And that's their country. That's their land. That's their society. Good or bad, it's theirs. And I think that we have to rethink how we go into other countries for, for different reasons. And, and also, uh, the, uh, the mistakes that were made, uh, we shouldn't we be very, very careful blaming one thing or just one time, uh, like he was saying, and point well taken, it's been over 20 years. It wasn't one person, one administration, one decision. It was multiple back to back to back to back to back to back. And so uh, let's come together and rethink this together. And let's don't look for some some silver bullet to solve all of this. It's just going to take a lot of work for everyone coming together, talking and listening to each other. That's what it's going to take. And uh, I think we have to, one lesson to me, Af the best lesson from, from Afghanistan is uh, let's start listening to one another and let's start listening to everybody on both sides and try to understand how people think before we start making decisions. Mm -hmm. And I just hope that, I guess, you know, the 20 years, the loss of lives on of Taliban fighters, of Afghan nationals, of United States troops, and of contractors, it's a tragedy. Um, but P. Michael McKinley did point to some improvements we made to civil society there. Uh, yeah. And I want to just point those out real quick. Um, I, if I can find them real quick. I don't know. Uh, but when he said uh, access to education for women and girls increased exponentially, um, mm -hmm. you know, people moved back to... Afghanistan refugees did because they they wanted to return to their homeland. I mean, I just hope that and and we see images of people who are scared. They're scared about the Taliban takeover. Um I just hope that let's say that we pull out and we don't go back and the Taliban start ruling the country. Maybe that access to education, the you show someone that, you know, institutions of civil society can't exist and it will cause a grassroots formation of Afghan citizens demanding human rights and the the years that the United States spent there the Afghan national defense and security forces may have failed but there may be an organic growth of a group that says you know what we don't have to live under Taliban rule and we can use some of the lessons we learned during the time the United States was here. Maybe it's training, you know, and we can take back this country and we can sort of install a, a country that has more value for human rights and, you know, the rights of, of women and girls. And, and, and they may be able to do it themselves and it'll be more meaningful because it's not done at the behest of a foreign power. It's done by their own, you know, volition. That's right. They've had a taste of education, and and it was at a significant a significant number of young people uh, have never been educated. Uh, they're illiterate, mm -hmm. and so they've had a taste of education. And who knows? Our time there 
uh, in one perspective may be failure, another perspective we might have uh, given them a light, just a spark. And there may be people there, like you said, that will say, let's take this and let's develop it from within. You know, the United States grew not from someone coming in and establishing a government. We had to develop it ourselves from the very beginning, step by step by step. And whatever government that if we can help other people that it has to be from them, they have to develop themselves and we can help. We can we can uh, support, but we can't do it for them. Mm-hmm. You have to do it themselves. And so going in and 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 doing it without them doing it is not a help. They have to do it themselves. So shall we just leave it there? Yes, I mean I'll, I'll just leave it by saying it's a it's a tragedy what's happening there. Um, and. I hate to see it, and I don't know what we could have done differently as as the American government, not we, but the American military, the American government. I don't know if the 20 years we spent there um, was worth it for us or for the Afghan people. There's, it's difficult to tell. But I just hope that, like I said, maybe some of our efforts will inspire, you know, um, the Afghan people to take back their country at some point in the future. And it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be 10 years from now. Um, but maybe maybe some good can come of this. And I guess it's not a good situation, but perhaps some good can come of it eventually. Um, that's, that's, that's what I hope for. Let's, let's hope that, let's hope that. I hope that for the Afghan people and the nation of Afghan. I hope that Afghanistan. So I'll play the outro music, and okay, it's a very go. it's a bummer of a topic. Uh, maybe we'll do something a bit more lighthearted on Friday. But this has been the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Uh, we're available wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Um, just search Sons of Sequoia. That's S E Q U O Y A H. Um, been an interesting discussion. And do you have anything to say in closing? In closing, uh, I think it fits very well with this episode. Uh, Keep on talking, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying.